Welcome to RSP Film and Data, though I think we probably need to change the name of this, right? Like, I mean, maybe we should just officially call this something else, even though we haven't really had a planning session. We can have it now. I mean, like, Adam, what do you suggest? Film and Theory. Film, film and, and theory. theory. I think Film yeah. and Theory makes more sense. Yeah. All right. Welcome to RSP Film and Theory. There we go. Um, season number two. It's always a pleasure to be able to have these conversations with Adam Harstead and it's great that he's joining us again for 2023-2024 you know hope your off season's been fun Um, and uh, we're going to get back into this where we're going to be doing this on a a weekly basis today Adam and I are going to talk about the value of using ADP as really your your ranking set and why he does that and then we're going to talk about players who present some level of risk um, based on what we're seeing with our respective ways of looking at rankings um so adam you know welcome back thanks again for jo- rejoining us and uh you know let's uh let's talk a little bit about adp why is adp the method of choice when you when you consider you know rankings for fantasy football yeah so um you know there's a lot of you look at like the stock market there's something called the efficient market hypothesis And it's this idea that um, the current stock prices are wrong right now. I mean, we know they're wrong because they're gonna change. They're gonna be different tomorrow. So that's tacitly acknowledging that the prices today are are wrong. But the prices today are a product of competing entities, highly motivated, you know, literally trillions of dollars at stake, um, who are basically making bets about what this is worth and they're incorporating all publicly available information. And as a result, the prices today are as likely to go up tomorrow as they are to go down. It's, it's roughly, it, we know they're wrong, but we don't know which direction they're wrong in. And so it's said that the market is informationally consistent or uh, informationally efficient. I um, mean, it's called the efficient market hypothesis. And there's a whole can of worms debate surrounding the efficient market hypothesis, but ADP kind of functions like that. We know that players, we know that the rankings are wrong. There's guys who are drafted in the first round who are going to be terrible this year. There's guys drafted in the 16th round who are going to be solid contributors to your team. We just don't know who. And if these, the ADP, the average draft position, is created by a contest between motivated participants who um, relatively know what they're doing and they're incorporating all available information, then the current daily consensus should be pretty efficient. It should be as likely to go up as it is to go down. Um, So I like using ADP as a starting point because it's kind of a wisdom of a crowd. Um, You know, a lot of research on wisdom of crowds. But the reason I like drafting off ADP most of all is because it doesn't even have to be the best set of rankings out there. Because when you're drafting at ADP, that doesn't really mean you're drafting players at their ADP. It means you're drafting whoever has fallen furthest past his ADP by the time it comes to your pick. So if I'm on the clock in the fourth round, I'm not drafting somebody with the fourth round ADP. I'm drafting someone with the third round ADP. And when you think about ADP, what it represents is this is the point where um, this is kind of the halfway point. Half of the time players will go before this, half of the time players will fall after this. So you ask what kind of players fall past ADP? Every player, literally every player Um, Other than like if there's a consensus slam dunk number one, but even then sometimes somebody's going to go rogue and the slam dunk number one's going to go at pick two. 
So everybody is roughly equally likely to fall past ADP. If I drafted a million teams just strictly off of ADP, I would have every player in one twelfth of my leagues. I'd have perfectly even exposure to everyone, more or less. And you can get into the weeds, and some players are slightly higher variance, and I'll have slightly more exposure to the slightly higher variance players. But the effects are small. Um, so drafting at ADP is basically giving you everyone in the entire market, which should give you a 1 in 12 chance of winning, except you got all of those players at a discount. So if I have a team that has, um, I don't know, let's pick a random player, like Lamar Jackson. Um, where is Lamar Jackson going right now? Uh, Lamar Jackson in single quarterback leagues is typically going at the beginning of the fourth round. Um, so my teams with Lamar Jackson are competing against all the other teams with Lamar Jackson, except my teams with Lamar Jackson got him in the fourth round, and all in, in the late fourth round, or even the fifth round, and all those other teams got him in the early fourth round. So I got to pair Lamar Jackson with a better player. I got to pair Lamar Jackson with an early fourth rounder. And Lamar Jackson plus an early fourth rounder is going to do better than Lamar Jackson plus a mid to late fifth rounder, because fourth rounders are better than fifth rounders. Um, so yeah, I really think it's just just drafting ADP fallers, as I call it, is um, if not the dominant strategy in fantasy football, one of the dominant strategies in fantasy football. And for my purposes, it's great because it's also the easiest strategy in fantasy football, um, which is good because as I always say, I'm spectacularly lazy. I'm looking for the maximum return on the minimum effort. Um, and I mean, it has some critics. People ask like, if you're doing off of ADP, shouldn't you expect average results? I will say that uh, I play one redraft league a year. It's the Football Guys Staff Redraft League. I'm playing against some of the best people in the industry, people who have been doing this for 20 plus years, who have won awards for ranking accuracy. Um, and I'm the two-time back-to-back defending champion in that league. Um, so, you know, it works. It works against any kind of competition. In fact, I think it tends to work better against sharper competition because um, highly skilled, highly experienced players are more likely to buck ADP in the first place, which means I get bigger discounts. Um, in a more casual league, you don't see guys falling two rounds past ADP, but you know, in an in a industry league, yeah, absolutely. I'll see a guy who just nobody likes that year. Um, and, and I wind up with a lot of exposure and it's, it's very successful for me. So it's important that we have experts setting the ADP in the first place. Um, but once that ADP is set, I think it's very easy for more casual players to just weaponize it and use it against people. Yeah, and I think that's the thing is that is when you talked about people who have a lot of experience and who are setting that the ADP, they tend to overthink in drafts. And and part of it too is I think it just you have to understand that when you're drafting, we talk about this all the time, but the draft is just part of your team building it's not the entire team building mechanism so if you're if you're kind of have if you have nice guardrails with adp which saying that it's going to be more efficient with what you're going to be able to do then you're probably not fucking up your team as much in the beginning and i think that's the important part is that if you're going to be diligent with the with free agent pools if you're if you're decent with trades if you have good lineup management you understand those things then having a team that that gives you you know the baseline you know whatever baseline chance of winning that you would say is acceptable then you can build from there but if you're starting in a hole because you took too many chances 
with the foundation of building your team, then you're having to dig out, you know, much sooner. And that becomes a lot harder um, because now you're more likely to overcorrect in some fashion because you're panicking about two or three or four or five picks where you tried to, you, you tried to outsmart the market, you know? And I think that that's why, you know, that would be my way of looking at, you know, ADP in terms of what, why that has value, even though, you know, I roll with my rankings and I'll take, I'll take chances with what I do. It's, it's certainly, if you're going to recommend to somebody, what's the best course of action to go? What's the wisest course? Draft safely, just land the plane, you know, can you walk away from, can you walk away from the landing as my, as my, my brother would say as a pilot, he'd say that's, that's, that's really all you really care about is if you can walk away from the landing. If the landing's not, you know, not perfect, who cares? Um, you know, you can, you can work, you know, work on it from there. But I would say, you know, with, if you have a crash landing with your team and your team's, you know, in bad shape within first three, four, five weeks, and you're not going to be able to make a, a huge change, you, you know, you're hoping for a huge change, but even then now you're chasing players that we talk about all the time on the waiver wire, where it's like, should you take that big chance? Should you not, you know, and, and, you know, that gets into, you know, kind of more complex decisions that can be difficult. And I, I'll also say, I mean, it's not for everyone. A lot of people find it to be a deeply unsatisfying strategy because I walk into a draft and I have no idea who I'm going to walk out with. Like a lot of people like having their guys, sure. you know, like I love this guy this year. I love everybody <coughs> every year if they, if they fall. Um, yeah. I just, I have no idea who I'm going to walk out with. And Sigmund, um, who's probably like the other end of the spectrum where like Sigmund has his guys. Right. Um, and God bless Sigmund, but he's he's not happy unless he's walking out of the draft with, with the guys that he's decided are his ride or dies that year. And he always um, gives me a hard time and he says, you know, you're basically letting your league mates draft your team for you. And I say, well, yeah, sure. But they draft me a pretty good team and I'm okay with that. Yeah. And maybe, you know. You know, to me, that it's like boxing. Like, Sigmund basically has, you know, three three punches he likes to throw. And he's going to try and dictate, you know, cut off the ring, put you in a corner, and basically throw the overhand right. And then he'll follow up with a, you know, with maybe a hook or an uppercut. And you know what's coming. You know what he's trying to do. And you know, he's going to justify that as why that's the best strategy for him. But I mean, there is something to be said about the value of being able to counterpunch and to be able to let the, let your opponents dictate what you do. I do that in auction leagues all the time. Like for me, auction leagues are all about looking at where people get hot or where people are like very fervent about spending and then and and make them kind of go a little bit over the top with their spending and then capture that moment and go okay there's the moment of caution now here's where i'm going to get players that i value highly just based on their salary not based on what they do on film even if they're not necessarily one of guys that i would consider my guys and say well i'm going to get him for 15 dollars less probably now than what i would have two nominations ago, you know, and then be able to, to be able to get multiple values that way. And, and to me, that's the same thing with redraft is that, it, you know, 
letting you know giving someone a hard time i mean you know that's you know i'm not going off on sigmund with that but it's like i i totally value the idea of saying okay let other people fuck it up and and take advantage of that and exploit it you're you know that also takes a level of self-control and understanding what's going on sigmund's playing the talent what he perceives as the talent and you're playing the draft you know and, and to me that's both are are valid ways of going about it yeah and the redraft is a good distinguisher there too because i'll say in dynasty i definitely have my guys and i will i try to be a very disciplined dynasty manager where um there's a guy i want but i'm not going to spend over market rate because you know if i spend over market rate it it, it lowers my profit margins um, and if you do that too much, even if you're making the right moves, you're just not benefiting from them as much as you could be. So I try to be very disciplined, but there's definitely guys I want and guys I don't want in Dynasty. And I think part of it is that, you know, I perceive that I have a, I believe I have an edge over the market in Dynasty in certain places, and I'm happy to exploit that. And in Redraft, I don't know, I, if I were Sigmund Bloom if I were Bob Henry, I would probably be as confident that I have an edge over the market and I'd be more willing to stick my neck out on guys and redraft. Um, although, like I said, I'm playing in a league with Sigmund Bloom and Bob Henry and um, I'm going for the three-peat right now. So I don't know, maybe, I, maybe I'm overconfident in myself in Dynasty and I should be more willing to, to just take where the value is. Um, yeah, I don't know. I. I I still think, obviously, you know, I believe it's true. I believe I have the edge in Dynasty and not in Redraft. So I, I behave more like that in Redraft and not in Dynasty. Maybe I need a bit more self-reflection on if that's really optimal here. I don't know. But we'll see as the season goes along, you know, from that end of the spectrum. But talking about, you know, players that maybe certain people's guys or your guys or, or someone that you particularly like, but maybe they're... they're they vary from what the ADP is saying, you know, players that present some risk. Who are some players right now that are that intrigue you that may be presenting some risk, at least based on what we're seeing from the consensus? Yeah, um, I think a lot of fantasy football is really just valuing risk and reward and the people who are most successful. Because a lot of people focus on the reward. I, I think that's probably the dominant school of thought right now is you know if tony pollard is what we think he is he could potentially be a top three running back and i think that's valid i think that's a fair assessment of the high range of outcomes the potential reward of drafting tony pollard um i think the dominant mode of thought like 10 years ago was to over focus on the risk um and there you know the old saying that you can't win your league in the first round but you can lose it uh which isn't true in fact you can neither win nor lose your league in the first round, but you can probably do more to help yourself win it than you can to help yourself lose it. Um, but that was, for a long time, that was the dominant school, is I'm going to avoid any risks whatsoever. I'm going to take the safe guy in my first three picks, and then you're not looking at the potential rewards. And ideally, a very um, strong valuation should be, what is the reward times how likely am I to achieve that reward? And that to get that, it involves carefully weighing the risks and the rewards. Um, and, you know, I, I struggle with it because a lot of people think of risk in a binary manner, that there's risky players and there's safe players. You know, Tony Pollard is a risky player. Someone like um, Christian McCaffrey is a safe player. But 
it's it's really a spectrum. Like there are no safe players. It's just varying degrees of risk and the varying types of risk. Christian McCaffrey has less questions about can he handle this large workload that's going to be coming his way. But there's a lot more questions about um, what even does his team want to do with him? We've only seen him for a half season in San Francisco. You know, he's 27 years old. He's on a second contract. This is a time when a lot of running backs have suddenly and without warning declined. Are we going to see any of that from McCaffrey? Are we um, going to see? Are we going to see a coaching staff who is ego attached to their their scheme to the point that we've seen them maybe go, "This guy's got great ability, but I don't care. He doesn't do what I want him to do exactly." And and I don't and traditionally. This isn't a Kyle Shanahan pick, if you ask me. He might say until he's blue in the face to the media that he wanted Christian McCaffrey, but I think his, I think John Lynch probably was like, "Listen, I'm tired of you getting me, you know, you having this penchant for these highly athletic, speedy running backs who can't think, and who can't, you know, who can't set up blocks well, and you just want them to simplistically do things that they do." And then they get hurt and we don't have someone who can replace the one player that you found in the pile of refuse, you know, in the late rounds that turned out to be good. But now there's a bunch of refuse on the field. So let's get you someone good and you're going to have to deal with that, that we're paying a premium pick for him. And so I, I'm interested to see whether my theory of this being true and if it, if it goes to a bad extreme, it would be that McCaffrey's going to then be complaining about he's not featured in the offense or allowed to do the things that he does well um, because Shanahan's having in, basically having a pissing contest with, with Lynch and then this whole thing falls apart. I don't think that's going to happen, but there's a, but there's a little bit of, I, I believe that McCaffrey's that guy that John Lynch said, yeah, let's get him and stop screwing around with what you do. In, in terms of running back play. Right. And I mean, it's, I, I think that's something that people aren't really discussing. And I, I agree with you. It's not a very likely risk, but I think the way to view risk is not, you know, if it's a likely risk, then this player is risky. And if it's an unlikely risk, this player is safe. You know, right. it's not a binary. Um, ACL tears and injury prone. We've talked about this so many times over the years. I'm sure everybody's tired of hearing like the injury prone thing, but the thing about being injury prone is, yes, it exists. There's there's actually medical evidence. If a guy tears his ACL, um, then in subsequent years when he's back on the field, he's at about he's got about a doubled chance of tearing his ACL. But you can't just look at it as a binary. Okay, this player tore his ACL, so now he's an injury risk. Because you have to say a double chance of what? A typical player, there's about a three percent chance in any given season that they're going to tear their ACL, and it's usually non-contact. It's usually not a style of play thing just there's a 3% chance on any given player he's going to be running down the field in the open field. I think like 80% of ACL tears are non-contact. Just going to be running on a routine play and all of a sudden snap his ACL's gone. You double that, it's a 6% chance, which 6% is worse than 3%, but, you know, it account it, it amounts to like an extra 0. Yeah. 0.3, 0. 0.5 missed games per season Cause, in expectation. Because then you look at Frank Gore and Ryan Westbrook, who had long careers that were productive and both tore the ACLs before they even got into the NFL. And then that makes us look at a guy like, oh, Tajay Spears, who had an ACL tear two years ago and doesn't have an ACL in one leg. Like, 
oh, I don't know, Heinz Ward and John Elway and a number of other players who doctors call copers. And copers who don't have ACLs tend to function very well at a high level if they're a high-level athlete, you know? So is Tajay Spears a coper or are people freaking out about and people freaking out about the ACL tear to an extent that you now have a player who's presented as a risk and there's certainly a risk there because there's cartilage issues and maybe the cartilage is thickened a little bit and now you're worried about is his knee a ticking time bomb like Jay Ajay um, who looked pretty good in college or are you looking at, or do you look at the guy and say handled a heavy workload the past year and a half Played really well, unbelievably dynamic, knee feels fine, team drafted him high, felt pretty good about the medicals, and he's a coper, and maybe we're all like, you know, you're getting, you're basically getting a terrific value out of a rookie who in a year or two could be taking the place of Derrick Henry. Yeah, yeah, and um, I think this gets to as somebody who plays fantasy football and who's looking to get better at playing fantasy football, I think one of the most important skills you can have is knowing who to listen to and who not to listen to and being able to distinguish like who's doing quality analysis and who is doing flashy flash in the pan, you know, what, where's the sizzle, where's the substance. Um, and I think, um, the, the reflex is exactly opposite in this case, where I think the reflex is the more confident someone is in their evaluation, the more people trust it. Um, when in reality, the, the, the instinct should be the less confident someone is in their evaluation, the more they should trust it, because that's usually an indicator that they're considering nuance and they're thinking about things probabilistically. And they're saying, you know, like, Nobody should be 100% confident about anything relating no. to this hobby. Nobody should even be 90 or 80% confident relating no. to anything. I think 60 is probably the limit. Sure. Yeah. And, and being able to distinguish um, between small amounts of, of confidence, you know, like the difference between 60% confident and 55% confident is a meaningful difference, um, especially if you have well-calibrated um, expectations and you have experience and, and you, you can trust that um, you can differentiate differences that small, that's a meaningful difference. And so you wanna find somebody who can say, I'm 60% confident versus I'm 57% confident, rather than somebody who's like 90% confident about everything, because then they're not, you know, they're not looking at the nuance of the risk profiles. That's that's the there are risky and there are safe the, players mindset, and not that everybody's a risk. It's just a question of how much of a risk. The the more confident I am in a player when I evaluate them, the 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 more neurotic and fearful I get about my thoughts on that player. Like, yeah. you know, Nick Chubb was a great example of a player who who I probably watched more tape of him in a very I, I I like I watch a lot of tape on players, obviously, but like I watched more on him than pretty much any running back I've ever watched because I felt so uncertain about what it was I was seeing and wanted to try and exhaust every avenue to confirm to 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 just find ways to confirm that what you know what I was seeing and what I was defining was well defined. Um, and also, that's I think that's a good habit of mind. Um, another thing, if you're looking for people who whose analysis you can more likely trust, 
don't look for people who are trying to prove themselves right. Look for people who are trying to prove themselves wrong. Yeah. 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 Definitely. So, you know, you, we, we started this with Pollard and kind of meandered through McCaffrey, touched on Tajay Spears a little bit. But, you know, for Pollard, it's the workload, right? So that's the concern for from your end. Because for me, that's, you know, when I hear coaches say, we, we feel like he wears down a little bit, um, you know, at the half of games. Uh, I still wonder if by... I think we're going to learn by preseason, by like August, mid-August, if whether or not they have that feeling about Pollard. And, and how we're yeah. going to know that is either they're going to be talking up a player like Malik Davis or Rico Dowdle, um, or they're going to be signing a veteran free agent. And I think it's more likely the latter. If you see them sign a veteran free agent, you know right away that they're concerned about giving him that type of workload. Honestly, I would view a veteran signing as a positive yeah. for Pollard. Um, I'm reminded of Andre Ellington, um, who was one of my first exposures to this idea that like the ability to tolerate a workload is a skill. So Bruce Arians was coach of the Arizona Cardinals, and Andre Ellington was basically the Tony Pollard of the time. He was electric in small samples, um, averaged five-plus yards per carry. Um, everybody was really excited about him coming into the draft, but he fell further than people thought. Um, and just constant every week there were questions like when is Ellington going to get more work how do you feel about Ellington why isn't Ellington touching the ball more and Arians um, who's one of my favorite coaches of all time because he's the only guy who will just straight up say it whether he should or not he said like listen you know some running backs I think are built to handle this kind of workload and some running backs are not I had a guy in Pittsburgh by the name of Willie Parker um, and I, I genuinely believe that I shortened, I took years off of his career because I gave him a workload he wasn't adapted to handle and he wore down and he lost his specialness. And I don't want to do that same thing with Ellington. Um, and then for some reason, I, I, we can speculate as to why, but next year, um, he did decide to give Ellington a very heavy workload. Um, Ellington's yards per carry dropped by like almost two full yards. Um, he was not explosive. He was not impressive and he got injured and then his career was done exactly like um, Arians had virtually predicted. Um, and so if Tony Pollard is an Andre Ellington, I think he can be very valuable as a 1A, 1B kind of back, yeah. but I don't think he'll be nearly as valuable as a clear cut number one workhorse, either because he will lose effectiveness over time or because he'll deal more with nagging injuries over time um, so I would almost view, you know, the team spending three million bucks and bringing in a veteran in August as a positive sign for Pollard because I, they're committed to Pollard. Pollard's going to get some workload. And if he gets, you know, like 220, 230 carries and 80 or 100 targets, he's a strong fantasy running back one. I don't need to be greedy beyond that. I'm thrilled with that kind of profile. I don't need the... 350 the touch yeah. season because I, I don't know if he'd survive it i don't think he's gonna get anywhere close to that anyway but like but i hear you and i think that's a that's a very good point to talk about that yeah maybe it is a positive that they would go that route you know the player for me you know when i see tony pollard the player i think of right now is is rico dowdle who nobody really knows anything much about from a fantasy perspective 
but the reason that I bring him up is that he's been on the on the um, Cowboys roster for three years. He got re-signed. They they let him go this year, and then they re-signed him for you know a reasonable amount of money. He's been injured every year that he's been on the roster, um, but he had beaten out Malik Davis um, last year and then didn't get the opportunities because he got hurt. He has an injury. It's always a nagging injury that he's had. And that history goes back to his days at South Carolina. But as, in terms of on the field, he's an all-around player, catches the ball really well, can run for power, shifty, has the, the type of size that he could easily split the load with Pollard and play at a high level if he can stay healthy, which is the big if. But the fact that He's going to be a free agent, most likely, unless he has an unbelievable camp. And people know by, you know, the second week of August that he's the name to know who's going to be working, you know, getting a significant workload with Tony Pollard. And that's being advertised. You know, other than that possibility, you're going to be able to get him as a free agent or consider him on that on that end of the spectrum. And I would... Um, you know, it's players like that that I find kind of interesting when I see a name of an unproven workload player. That's and that's kind of where I would classify Pollard is that he, you know, or you know, when I say unproven workload, he has a proven workload as a committee option. Um, right. But anything beyond that, you're not going to give him Ramondre Stevenson, Nick Chubb, Saquon Barkley, or Eckler or McCaffrey type of touches. I just don't think you're going to see that level out of him. Um, Although to recognize uncertainty, I don't know. Maybe you will. Yeah. I, I, I say all this, and I fully acknowledge the possibility. Like, maybe Pollard does finish in the top five in touches this year. That's within the range yeah. of outcomes, and it wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. Um, I just think it's important to recognize that there are red flags in his profile as to whether that's kind of the likely course that the year takes for him. Yeah, and because he brought up Michael Turner, and that one year Michael Turner had that was really heavily with a heavy workload, he performed well, but I, if I recall, after that his workloads weren't quite maybe as as strong after that True. big year. But Turner was also old, so I'm pulling him up. He was um, 26 when he first joined the Falcons. Um, and he had 376 carries. Um, and then he was injured a bit the next year. Um, and then he had 334 carries the year after that. 301 carries the year after that. So he actually did. He maintained that pretty high workload. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he averaged per game. It was probably about 100 yards a game over a four-year span. Um, and only really missed five games to injury. Um, yeah, I brought, I brought up Turner in the pre-show. And, and the context is... Sometimes when a guy's not getting a workload, there's a really good reason. And in Turner's case, that really good reason was named LaDainian Tomlinson. Right. Like, of course, Turner's not getting 300 touches with the Chargers because he's behind LaDainian Tomlinson. Who would give Turner touches over Tomlinson? Um, and there's that's a story we can tell with Pollard. Of course, Pollard hasn't gotten 300 touch seasons so far. He's been sharing with Ezekiel Elliott. Who's going to give Pollard 300 touches with Ezekiel Elliott? Well, Maybe Pollard is the next Turner. According to a lot of people, everyone... Because Ezekiel Elliott's trash, according to a lot of those people 
who said that he didn't deserve the big contract. He wasn't even a, a good starting running back in the league. And why wasn't Pollard getting that opportunity? So to, if I was going to play that their argument, I would argue, well, if if he wasn't going to get it with the Elliott, who clearly wasn't as good as Pollard, according to them, then he's sure, certainly not going to get it now because he couldn't beat out Ezekiel Elliott. You, you know? Um, but, you know, I'm being facetious. But the, but yeah. I love your point and about I always have. I always hate, like, deserve. And I know, I know, you know, I'm preaching to the choir yeah. here. But I always hate, like, deserve when talking about contracts because, like, these guys deserve every dollar they can get. They, yeah. you know, like, the rigors that they're going through and the sacrifices they're making, I don't begrudge any player a single dollar that they make. Um, and especially running back contracts, it's hard because they're so underpaid as rookies, especially the good ones, um, that when their contract comes up, they want to kind of make up for, like, I've given you so much value, surplus value, um, but in reality, like, they're probably not going to produce over the next four years because it's a hard position and aging is really rough um, and players decline. Uh, people think it's based on workload, but it's predominantly based on age very quickly. Um, and so even when he signed at the time, I agree with the analysis, it was a bad contract at the, at the time, but Jerry Jones is kind of one of those who's loyal to his guys. And I think some of it was just a reward for what he had given so far. And even if it wasn't like an optimal contract, you know, players like playing for Jerry Jones because they know that he's going to be loyal to them if they're loyal to him. And I like the idea of what McCaffrey broached as an idea of maybe having escalators in the rookie contract based on production so that those are built in. And that way, if you you perform to a certain extent, you're getting paid for your production. And I think that that's probably a a, a smarter way to go about this. At, at least if you're going to go from that perspective. But back to Turner real quick, which is kind of interesting to me because looking at him at, you know, in 2008, he had a, he really had a Ladanian Tomlinson-esque season. You know, 376 yeah. carry. Um, Except carries. no catches. Yeah. but it's More so, like a Derrick Henry-esque season, I think. Yes, I would say that's correct. Now, but from, a fan, but from a fantasy points standpoint, when you get into 1,700 you know, rushing yards and 17 touchdowns, that's that's elite. However you want to characterize the the elite production there. Um, and then, you know, two years later after the injury, 1,371 yards, that's definitely elite for this era. And then at mm -hmm. age, you know, 29, 1,340 yards. And he was getting, you know, he had 23 touchdowns in those two years, averaging about 1,350 55 yard 1355 yards um you know pretty awesome for a player in his late 20s at he that had five stage. straight seasons with double digit touchdowns i mean even in his last year he only had 90 uh, 928 yards but he still had 11 touchdowns the year he got hurt he only played 11 games 906 yards but still 10 touchdowns yeah i mean i i can't think offhand like he might be the last running back we've seen with five straight seasons of double digit touchdowns yeah that's very that's that's a good point but it's fascinating to me because there were a lot of players in the, I would say before 2012, it seemed like there were more running backs before 2012 who did carry the ball into their late 20s and early 30s and had higher workload volumes. So what's going on that, because how's our perception changed? I think that's maybe something maybe we should look at for a later date and see whether what I'm characterizing is actually a fact. Um, oh yeah, I could go on. I've got, 
I could I could give you thirty minutes on on like running back aging patterns and what changed and um, yeah I think it's fascinating and I've done a lot of work in looking at it and like you know I say don't trust people who are confident but I'm pretty sure I have like the answer to that. Well, let's let's do it because honestly, I mean at at this stage there's we could sit there and talk about players versus ADP, but let's you know instead I I think this is a better topic, so let's do it. This is the podcast where we change the name in the first 1 minute. Obviously, we're okay uh, rolling with the punches and going off topic. <laughs> yes, we are we are the extension of the audible at this point, you know. I would definitely in the truest sense so there's two different things at play here. Um, first of all, people see trends in performance and they think that it represents like an actual trend. But the reality is that um, incoming talent is really, really randomly distributed. And a lot of stuff is downstream of that. We had a lot of really good running backs enter the NFL between say 1998 and 2008. And that 2008 class especially was a capstone class at the time it was probably the best running back class in history. And as a result, you know, good players play longer than bad players. And so the, that crop of running backs, that 1998 to 2008 crop, they aged really well and they lasted, you know, into their 30s, no problems. And then for one reason or another, there just weren't any good running backs entering the league. If you look between 2009 and 2015, 2016 or so, um, like, yeah, you had Le'Veon Bell, um, you had LaShawn McCoy, uh, what other great running backs entered during that span? Arian Foster is an undrafted free agent, but he's right at the beginning of that span at 2009. Jamal Charles, Jamal Charles absolutely. Oh, no, Charles was 2008. He was 2008, wasn't he? He was yeah. part of that amazing 2000... Maybe Foster was as well? No, I think he was 2009. But um, just not very many like running backs who you would describe as great. And so in that respect, it's not really that surprising that they didn't age well because it, they just weren't as good. Um, and then 2017 comes along, uh, which I said 2008 at the time was the best running back draft class in history. 2017 smashes 2008 on any metric you look at, <coughs> far and away. I mean, they are further ahead of 2008 than 2008 is ahead of probably the fifth best running back draft yeah. class of all time. It's just a monster, monster, monster class. Yeah. And we're looking at those guys and all of a sudden they're aging really well. You know, Austin Eckler, Christian McCaffrey, these guys are not slowing down at 27 and 28, like we might have seen from other draft classes. And I would expect, you know, the good 2017 draft class to, to age more like those 2005, 2006 era draft classes and less like the 2012, 2013 era draft classes. So some of it is I think people are looking at randomness and they're mistaking it for a trend. Um, and we see this at other positions too. Like it looked like the quarterback position was getting older, but that's because you had Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, Drew Brees, Aaron Rodgers, Philip Rivers, Ben Roethlisberger, Eli Manning, all enter the league in like a five or six year span. And of course those guys aged great. They're, they're Hall of Famers, borderline Hall of Famers, near Hall of Fame caliber players. Of course they're going to play into their late 30s because that's what those types of players do. And then again, look at what quarterbacks entered the league between uh, 2006 and like 2011. You know, it's a bunch of nobodies you get, like E.J. Manuel types and Geno Smith, who's, you know, kind of hanging along as a journeyman. And um, no, those those players didn't age very well. And since there wasn't a younger crop of players coming in, those older quarterbacks hung on longer. You get Ryan Fitzpatrick, who was able to hang on, I think, to like 37 or 38 because there weren't any young guys coming in and taking his place. Um, but now you're getting Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes. Like, I'd expect Allen and Mahomes to play into their 40s, too. Just because E.J. Manuel didn't doesn't mean I wouldn't expect today's superstars to. 
So if you look at positional aging over time, and I've, I've got a chart of, like, this is the oldest fantasy relevant player at each position over time. And there's peaks and valleys, um, but over a long window, it's basically flat. Even since the 60s, the oldest players ha are not any older today than they were in the 60s and the 70s. It's just a function of when the good players enter the league, um, those players tend to last longer. So I think that's a lot of the running back aging story. Um, and I think that's a lot of the story at basically all positions. Um, but with running back especially, and a little bit with the other positions, there's another complicating factor, and that is the 2011 collective bargaining agreement, which instituted the rookie wage scale, um, which I'm not going to sugarcoat it, was the veteran players robbing the, the rookies. I mean, the rookies really got screwed because they didn't have a seat at the table. Um, so nobody voted their interest, and they got screwed so hard. Rookies are phenomenally underpaid. And as a result, it was kind of like a Faustian bargain because now the veterans are getting replaced by these super cheap rookies that they created. Uh, and so I think 15, 20 years ago, when a veteran would have cost maybe like 15% more than a rookie, like teams were more likely to keep the veteran journeyman around because he was experienced. Um, he, you don't really get that much savings by going younger. Um, but now rookies are just so incredibly cheap and veterans are so expensive, they might cost two to three times as much where teams are like, that experience has value, but it's not commensurate to the extra cost. And so these journeymen hanger-on veterans, the guys who would have kind of kicked around three or four teams at the end of their career, um, they're getting squeezed out of the league at an earlier and earlier rate. Um, and I think running back is the position where you really see that the most, just because aging is so hard there and because the cost difference between a veteran and a rookie can be so severe. Um, so I think there is a structural cause, and that's the rookie wage scale. Um, which doesn't hurt like the top tier veterans, you know, your Hall of Famers or your All Pros, but I think kind of destroyed the middle class veteran as a group across all positions, but especially at running back. Um, and then beyond that, I just think a lot of it is just structural related to talent. Um, when we have an amazing class like 2017, I don't think it's surprising that we see, like even Jamal Williams last year, that season came out of nowhere, but he's another one of those class of 2017 running backs. Um, and I think they're gonna age a lot more gracefully than some of their other peers. Well, he's a good example of a middle-class running back from a talent perspective, right. if you ask Absolutely. me. Absolutely. You know, whereas, and I think, you know, again, we'll point out for people who may nitpick a point and may have not heard the whole context. You know, when we talk about players, good players last longer, you know, we're not talking about exceptional circumstances of a guy like Todd Gurley. You, you know, right? You, you know, Todd Gurley is a good example of a player who, ought, you know, from a talent standpoint, I think it's pretty easy to see that he could have been a Hall of Fame player if he was if he was healthier and was able to play a little bit longer. Um, you know, other players that might have fit into that, you know, during this period of time. I mean, you could say Eddie Lacy was a good running back. Was he? Yeah, he was. I mean, I don't. He wasn't like all pro Hall of Fame, no. but like he's another who easily could have been one of that upper middle yeah. class running back if that upper middle class existed still. Exactly. You know, Le'Veon Bell certainly a good running back. Maybe you could argue, you, you know, at his you look at his peak could have been a great running back. You, you know, guys like David Wilson are an is an interesting. David Wilson and Doug Martin showed a lot. Javid Best. You know, yeah. Javid Best is an even better example of someone who, Ryan Williams, who got hurt very early in his career, Mikel LaShore, those are some guys from 2011 
that also Ryan Matthews that, in 2010. And yeah, and Matthews, I know his story because I know yeah. his trainer, and that that had nothing to do with ability. It had to do with application of wanting to do the work and confidence in oneself, which again are skills. They're learned skill sets that you know that are a combination maybe of environment and you know what what you learn as well as where you're kind of starting from in terms of um how you see yourself and how you work but there's examples like that but we just mentioned maybe what eight players out of a span of like 10 years you know so you're looking at maybe one instance a year where that's the case and that's not enough to sit there and say you know that you know not be to, to counter the good players play longer you know yeah and so like an, an example of something that i think was possible 15 years ago but really you wouldn't see today would be a guy like rudy johnson in cincinnati um who was you know kind of lightly regarded backing up Corey dillon um at age 25 um he took over for dillon had a really surprising good season made the pro bowl um, and his team committed to him and they yeah. let him, you know, hang out, hang around and be their primary running back for another three years. And he gave him like good, solid workman like seasons. He's like that quintessential upper middle class running back. Um, and teams were more happier to commit to that type of player and give them um, a two to three to four year run. And I don't think you would see something like that today. I think if you got a Rudy Johnson like fourth year breakout that guy would be testing the market and he'd be landing somewhere, you know, like a Jamal Williams situation where he's landing somewhere to be the one B or the one C on a new team in a new system. Yeah. No, I think that makes perfect sense. And <clears throat> I mean, the last guy that I think of who played into his kind of almost his mid thirties at the position other than Frank Gore. Um, well, Peterson too. Yeah. You know, Frank Gore and Peterson. Those are the two. And, but still, it would be a same, similar type of player in terms of ability. And that was Ricky Williams. And yeah. Ricky Williams left on his own accord because the Ravens wanted him back. And he, you know, he tells a story recently about that he just decided that he thought that he was going to get paired with Ray Rice and that they were going to be doing working together. And he thought that was good, but he realized that Ray Rice really didn't want to work with him. Um, and he just didn't want the headache of dealing with someone who, because he said he liked the running back rooms back then was a team oriented thing. And you felt like everybody had a role and everybody had a piece and you were doing the work together. And he said in, in that particular running back room, Ray Rice was essentially kind of the, a, a bit of a diva in a sense and a, all about himself and didn't want to share. And, and Williams was someone that the team wanted back, but he didn't want to be in that situation. So, and you could see he played at a pretty good level, you know, based on what I saw at that, at that age range. And you don't see that much, like you said, anymore. I mean, Latavius Murray, you know, he was never that kind of player. You know, he's the closest thing, him and Gore, but those are guys that you just see as, you're, they're happy with using them if they have to. You know, yeah. it's not like, oh, we've got a solid backup here that we know that we feel strong about and we're going to keep here long term. You know, Kevin Falk at the end of his career, Antoine Smith at the end of his career type of thing. You, you know. So here's, 
I pulled up, here's a list of every back since 2010 who had 150 fantasy points at age 30 or older. Uh, Peterson, Gore, obviously. LeGarrette Blunt did in um, 2016 for New England, the year he got all those touchdowns. Mark Ingram, D'Angelo Williams, Fred Jackson, uh, Cordero Patterson, kind of a weird exception. Yep. Uh, Matt Forte, Fred Jackson again, um, Peterson again, LaDainian Tomlinson, Danny Woodhead, Michael Turner, Forte again, and Willis McGahee. And the thing about the list, like, those are all really good running backs. Like, yes. Who's the worst running back on that list? Fred Jackson uh, was the undrafted guy. Yeah, well, and he was in the CFL for a long time, and I think if he'd been in the NFL, maybe we would have higher regard for him. Like, Woodhead probably doesn't really belong on that list, and he only started two games that season, but he caught yeah. like a million passes for San Diego. Um, but The rest are first-round guy or first-round backs for the most part. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like, maybe Mark Ingram is the worst back on that list. And, um, and, and Mark Ingram was, you know, he didn't live up to expectations, but he was a really good running back. Yeah. Um, and that's kind of the thing where he was not the best running back players, in his class that year. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was. Um, yeah, I think he was pick 40 or something. And, and in but, hindsight, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't keep interrupting you, but no, you're in, good. In, in hindsight, when you look at that class, it was Ingram first overall, Ryan Williams banged mm -hmm. up, Shane Vereen, who was a scat back, Mikel Lashore, AC, um Achilles. Daniel Thomas, DeMarco Murray, Stefan Ridley, and the maybe the best of the the backs at the lowest end of those spectrums were guys like Bilal Powell, fourth round pick, Jaquiz Rogers, fifth round pick, Dion um, Lewis, fifth round pick. I Who mean, was my guy? Yeah. yeah. So back when I had guys. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you know, I think you made away. a good distinction. It's not that like all good players play longer. But the players who play longer are good players. Yes. Because um, there are good players who don't make it just because it's such a violent sport and there's so much randomness and and you're like luck predominates in outcomes. To to get to four, to get to age thirty as a running back, you need to be both good and lucky. Yes. You can't be lucky and bad. You can't be good and unlucky. You really need both factors working in your favor. Yeah. Um, and so when there aren't that many good running backs entering the NFL it's more likely that bad luck is going to filter the ones that do before they make it to 30. Yep. Um, but being good is kind of a precondition towards, and, and I see a lot of, there's a lot of analysis on like workload and does workload affect how running backs um, age at their careers. And the problem is that workload is often a proxy for age. Like Emmett Smith, after 1500 career touches was older than Emmett Smith after a thousand career touches. And therefore, he was closer to the end. Um, and if you don't control for age, of course, workload is going to be a negative indicator for remaining career. But if you do control for age, typically the guys who get the most touches and last the longest after age X are also the guys who got the most touches and lasted and did the most work before age X. Because again, it's the good players and it's the good players who are going to survive if anybody does. P Peterson, Forte, Cedric Benson, Ray Rice. Um these are all examples of players who had high workloads in college, Ricky Williams, um, who could, they show, like we, we often say, if you can handle the workload at college, odds are likely that you can handle the workload in the pros, barring a freak injury. And when you think about guys who were good and unlucky, Todd Gurley, um, William Andrews, you know, good, you know, 
guy, you know, I would even say Javid Best was an example of that, uh, a very good example of that, who were, you know, guys who were just unlucky. I would say Jonathan Franklin was an extraordinarily unlucky good player who played basically one game for the Green Bay Packers alongside Eddie Lacy, had a strong game against Cincinnati, and then the second game after that, his career was over. You know, and he was a he was a guy who succeeded Maurice Jones-Drew at UCLA. Um, Maurice Jones-Drew was a high workload player. Um, you know, another example of that. So, I mean, those are, you know, I, I don't know. I, I enjoyed this conversation because I think it does give people some perspective about the running back position, where it is today, why it's there, and then some of the separating fact from from myth. You know, so... Yes. Yeah, it's this the aging question is one of the oldest questions in fantasy football. Um, and it kind of drives me nuts because I've seen such amazing analysis that just gets memory hold and forgotten. And then like all the bad analysis just keeps getting recreated over and over and over again. Um, but yeah, it's one of the things that like I feel like has been understood for so long and then that that received wisdom was just forgotten and has to be constantly relearned yeah we need we need to create some post-it notes and like just you know and have like have some quick post-it notes that we review with people on a regular basis throughout the season of when we start talking about running backs so that yeah, there should be like a rule there should be a rule you have to read this before you're allowed to talk about derrick henry because then there's like oh derrick henry's 28 look at what other running backs have done at 20 well yeah but were those other running backs derrick henry you know yeah. it's possible he's done at 28 it's very likely there's a there's a very high likelihood that running backs lose a step and that likelihood increases with every successive year that risk is absolutely there but derrick henry has the requisite talent and the requisite skill set to Buck get a little trend. bit of luck in his favor and to make it to 32-33. Yeah. Well, hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully you enjoyed this episode. I know we did. You know, able to have the conversation that we had. And um, I'm glad that, you know, I have a, a partner in crime here that we can just kind of switch things up as we go and, and just find the best possible conversation that we can have for the week. Um, hopefully you enjoyed that because um, there's going to be a lot more of that to come. You can find Adam Harstead on Twitter at Adam Harstead. Of course, the fabulous work that he does at footballguys.com. You can find me also at footballguys.com. Maybe I'm, maybe I feel like, and, and I'm joking because I know he's not thinking about me at all in this regard, but I, I'd like to joke that, that Adam is trying to call me out of um, retirement from football guys league so that I can try and um, mount a challenge and redraft take a shot his at dominance. King. That's right. Take a shot at the king. I told them if they let me, if they let me win one more time, they're going to have to rename it to the Harstad Invitational. Yeah, I may have to play right now. I may have to come back and play this year just to try and like just just as motivation to try and foil that from happening because obviously Wood isn't getting the job done. I don't know. Nope. Uh, you know, nope. he's out in Italy or something. I don't know. I always like, it's time. very important. It's very important to troll your league mates. Um, and I play with, with, um, with, uh, Wood and with Bob Henry and with Moral Tremblay who produced projections for football guys for years. Yeah. And Moral's pretty unflappable. I just don't even try. But the best way to troll Bob Henry is to tell him that I'm drafting 100% off of Bob Henry's projections. And the best way to troll <laughs> Jason Wood is to tell him I'm drafting 100% off of Bob Henry's projections. <laughs> 
So yeah, I, I think that's I, I love how that goes. And I think the I think the best way to troll Bloom is to like is to throw the wet blanket on his players and just talk talk crap about his players. Um you know and then draft some of his players, knowing No, who I they think are. the better one is if you know who his players are like intimate that you're about to draft them three rounds early and watch them freak out and pull the trigger three rounds early. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. I'm going to have to definitely try that with them down the line here. But, uh, but listen, you know, thanks again for everybody for listening. We'll be, you'll see us again, um, you know, on, you know, we'll be doing this usually on, on Thursdays. Uh, I think I know what day of the week it is right now. So that's good. I'm getting rounded back into in season form and uh, you know, Thanks and good night.